When you say people, you mean living people? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm here to apply for a research position in your neurology lab. The Carmel Institute? Tell me about that. Anything with patients there or...? Earthworms. I'm sorry? <clears throat> it was an immense project. I was to extract one decagram of myelin from four tons of earthworms. Really? Yes. I was on that project for five years. I was the only one who believed in it. Everyone else said it couldn't be done. It can't. I know that now. I proved it. I, I think you're clearly looking for someone with more of a, a clinical background. And as much as I need a job, there must be a hundred more applicants suitable for this position. Thank you, anyway. Dr. Sayer, uh, back in medical school. You took a pulse, you took a temperature, you did diagnosis. Oh. Well, there you have it, then. You do want the job, don't you? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. You are here with your host, comic Nick Munez. Today on the show, we have Dr. Saxon, his one of the best non-selling fiction books of all time, Awakenings. We are going to be piecing together the puzzle of Parkinson's tongue twisters. Got to wake up. It is 6 a.m. here on the Rocky Mountain Range. A um, awakening of my own as I sip on some coffee. And by coffee, I mean the best God-given drink on earth. Ice water. Sue me. Welcome, old comers, newcomers, all-timers. We're going to be talking about Alzheimer's today. And boy, oh boy, do we have some good news that you're going to be looking forward to. A little bit about the book we're going to be reading. Again, a third of people throughout their life will experience one of these mental degenerative diseases by the end of their life and i'm sure you already know somebody who's going through something like this so as this show is a different topic every week and a new challenge for me we're gonna try to make the most morbid topic on earth light of heart and able to laugh at it awakenings was adapted into an academy award nominated film in 1990 starring robin williams and robert de niro for this very book this study conducted up in some decrepit asylum in upstate New York called Mount Carmel. And then you got Robin Williams, who everybody just sees him as a joke thief. I read the Robin book, which we're going to be going over later this year, most likely next year. Actually, we'll do that for the comedy month next year, August. And you know, towards the end of his life, he's putting out all these sappy movies. No more Mork and Mindy and cheap laugh tracks coming from Robin Williams. He pretended to have Parkinson's for this movie and to raise awareness. So there's also a lot of actual video footage that you could find. They did a documentary of Dr. Sachs when he was actually practicing medicine. And this book today is all about medicine and trials and tribulations we're going to learn about. You're going to know the ins and outs of universal benefits, effects, and side effects. L-Dopa is going to be the drug of question today, which is one of these dopamine antagonizers, it's called. And it is, we're discovering nowadays, able to unlock, because it hits the addiction, the reward center part of your brain. And in some of these older patients, they develop addictions they never knew they had. They'll wake up at the MGM casino one night and a strip club the next they're addicted to tossing singles these dopamine antagonizers are very questionable it's gonna be up to you to decide as it is with life itself and the big news we have ladies and gentlemen 
fuck this three time a month, all this weenie stuff. I'm making your Tuesdays a little bit better from now on. It's the worst day of the week. Monday, you're starting fresh. Wednesday, you're halfway there. Thursday, almost Friday. And Friday, it's the motherfucking weekend. Tuesdays are booty. Every single morning, you're going to wake up to a brand new Nick's nonfiction. If, even if it means me recording the show at the crack of ass, you're getting a new episode every Tuesday. I look forward to all of our new listeners and our Alzheimer's, the day ones. I know you guys out there. I really appreciate everyone along for the journey because we're kicking it into a whole new gear. About the author today, our savior of synapses, we have Oliver Sacks. He was born in 1933, died the 30th of August, 2015, fairly recent. He was kicking around for 75 years. He's a British neurologist, calls himself a naturalist, a historian of science, and of course an author. You're one of the authors of the biggest nonfiction books ever sold. Do you really need any more credits, buddy? Just patting that Wikipedia page. 1939, Sachs was six years old. Him and his brother were evacuated from London. Not a great time to be in London. They were being blitzkrieged by the Nazis at the time. And he had a very uprooted childhood, which goes into some of these diseases you're going to see today. It's not great to be uprooted when you're trying to grow some roots. And this was a time period that ignited the switch in his brain. He said... Uh, we need to start looking inwards. It's the most um, developed thing in the world. Your brain is more complicated than the universe. How is it we know more about the Milky Way galaxy than we do our own friggin' noodles? <laughs> Dr. Sachs has a big old head on his shoulders. He's saying his writings influenced major playwrights, feature films, which I guess, yeah, he had De Niro. You talking to me? Play one of his fucking patients. He also says he uh, influenced animated short films, opera, dance, the fine arts, <laughs> musical works, and classical genre. Maybe not just the fine arts, the lowbrow humor of Nick's nonfiction as well has been influenced by Dr. Sachs. He received his medical degree from Queen College of Oxford in 1960, interned at Middlesex Hospital in London, and then came over to the States, interned at Mount Zion Hospital in San Francisco, finished off that residency at UCLA Neuropathy. He did not like that well-worn path that he was on, and in 1966, he began serving as a neurologist at Beth Abraham Hospital chronic care facility in the Bronx, doing his own thing, trying. When you're in these like end-of-life zombie homes where the people are terminal, they let you have a much wider range of medicines and L-dopas, things you can test on old people to try to fix them. And Sachs was like, let's send it, let's try everything we can rather than just walking down the same hiking trail as everyone. He worked with a group of survivors from the 1920s with what they called sleeping sickness or encephalitis lethargica, who had been unable to move on their own for decades, and his treatment of these people with L-Dopa became the basis for the book Awakenings. Um, you're going to get the first chapter is an entire history of Parkinson's and sleeping sickness. Let's get into it. He wrote all these books about history. Science was published by the New York Times. People love him. It's ten short chapters today. The first and the last three are probably going to be the longest because there's six patient accounts within and that's when you're really going to be able to make your own judgments because nobody just like everybody's body is different everybody experiences these drugs differently chapter one parkinson's and sleeping sickness 
1817, Dr. James Parkinson was a London physicist, and he published Essay on the Shaking Palsy, 1817. This is 50 years after he threw some tea in the harbor and told English to go throw it up theirs. We already started tracking the degenerative pathways of Parkinson's, 1817. He was British anyway, so we didn't need that information here in America. He isolated the symptoms of the shaking tremor, and he was saying for some reason people's gait is also hurried, the way they walk as well as their speech. And this is all a non-medical definition. It's the first time, though, someone is saying, hey, there's this entire host of ailments that we need to try to clarify as something that maybe we can help people with. Dr. Parkinson's was the first to see all these mutual symptoms as the part of an entire malfunction at the end of the life. And from 1860 to 1890, a little man called Charcot continued this research. He added catatonia, depression, and hysteria to the list of the shaking palsy ailments. Charcot was the first one to call this disease a neurosis. He was linking the mind to the body saying it's uh, these uh, symptoms are manifesting as a complete disease of the brain charcot got even more experimental with it he was going it's rarely found in people below 50 years old so maybe it is a defect of nutrition you're going to learn from our second patient today who had a uh, third it is she had a crap diet they called her big betty the what is it beast big bertha <laughs> the bertha the beast and she developed it at like the age of 20. She was a zombie for 48 years. So maybe it is a defect of nutrition. Nutrition science is still an absolute joke in this country. Without vitamins and fresh food to try these new fixes to the disease, people like Charcot just disregarded the nutrition thing as an idiosyncrasy. Sleeping sickness started to really pick up in the late 1800s towards the tail end of Charcot's work. And what was happening then? Massive industrialization. No surprise there. People are working double shifts all the time now. It's basically Parkinson's too. They call it sleeping sickness. People were going crazy. They were having delirium from not sleeping. And so <laughs> we just prescribed everyone tranquilizers at that time. Phenothiazine was given to hundreds of thousands of people who were factory workers. And <laughs> speculation from Dr. Sachs, he was going, maybe it looks a little bit like the starting opioid epidemics who are fully underway now since his passing. A third of people are addicted to fucking Oxycontin in America. Again, the two most important things you could do for your human body, diet and sleep, could probably help delay some of these decays at the end of your life. Other causes attributed to Parkinson's during the late 1800s were coal gas poisoning and syphilis. <laughs> so in all these tremors, these widened gates are all considered the same disease. It's almost like we're just giving the name of something we don't know a new name, as I always say on the show dark matter yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, just past the atmosphere it's all it's all out there it's 70 percent of space it's dark matter what the fuck is it are you really sure that every single consistent part of space from the kuiper belt to fucking the andromeda galaxy is all just dark matter it's like what we're saying yeah your brain turns into dark matter at the end of the life you're not gonna know what's happening to yourself let's try to figure it out maybe charcot's given credit for inventing the word festination i feel like that'd be a lot older than him <laughs> 
Uh, it means a hastened manner of patience, and it's this weird uh, teeter-totter that the Parkinson's patients walk of your catatonic one day, you're locked in your body, and then the next day it feels like you're a manic mess just uh, doing tasks that it doesn't even feel like you have set up for yourself. The thing is that you're losing intention, so you could take orders from a nurse, but you can't give yourself your own will. You lose your fucking will. Sachs was saying one of the worst side effects that the patients would report was a second, like an invasive voice convincing people not to move. It was a counter will, Sachs called it. Counter will. I've been reading some Nietzsche lately. He is always saying the most free spirit has to have the most disciplined will. And it's scary how you see these people describe themselves as prisoners. So you're definitely not a free spirit if you're a prisoner because you're trapped in your own body. There's no discipline. It's just lethargy. And back to Charcot a little bit. He was going Parkinson's. It's uh, obviously a big host of different things we're grouping together. But even worse, Parkinson's takes on different forms throughout the life of the disease. <laughs> it's not even one describable disease. Patients that were inpatiented up at Mount Carmel, the asylum, were all in the post-encephalitic phase, which is what they call having zero impulses to move for hours at a time. It's an old Latin word, abulia, if you've ever heard of it. It's a fun word to say. It means absence of will, how Nietzsche would describe most people. They would still take a command from a nurse, but again, it just seems like this person is an empty vessel on their own. It's very similar to a patient in the throes of a deep depression. No impetus, initiative, or vitality. You straight up look like Bill Clinton right now. <laughs> Guys, I just did. I'm 24 years old, so I'm naturally on an upswing of testosterone. I just did my first cycle of D-Pole. This is the most effective nutrition supplement at GNC. I'm telling you, this is your cure to apathy right there. Apathy is the root of all evil. If you know a little thing about testosterone and the difference between men and women and estrogen, testosterone, of course, it makes you more aggressive, which you could channel towards things, but it makes you more focused. And I don't know, I'm not the doctor here, but maybe if we had deep hole at the time, I would get some of these grannies onto the weight floor and just get all this into their system. I'm telling you, I am definitely a little bit more clear of mind and driven than I was my previous cycle. I'm going to be like a menstrual chick from now on. You're going to be able to tell when I'm on this and not. <laughs> Me and my uh, cocaine, coffee, ice water in the morning. Not really. <laughs> in 1916, 1917, even deeper into an era of industrialization and especially imperialism. So we're uh, making our money off of Hawaiian pineapples and a bunch of banana republics. What took the back seat at that time when you're in a time of war basically is pharmaceuticals. At the time of the sleeping sickness, all of those tranquilizers were getting much bigger. I'm not sure if you know this, but Ambien makes $28 billion a year to this day. You could build fucking six Trump walls across Mexico with just one year's profit. That's Ambien. These are, again, these are band-aids. These are not cures to your diseases. And at the same time, in that 1917, there was a really big study which um, Sachs kept talking about. It was where 
Parkinson's, sleeping sickness patients, and people with schizophrenia were all grouped into the same sleeping sickness end-of-life disease. So again, it's such a new science to even pretend like we know it all now and the DSM is the holy bible of medicine will be laughed at within a decade. So much so that at the 1910 periods in England, they were thinking they were having a revival of the of the 1670s sleepless hysteria. These are amazing stories you need to go read about. Sachs had some of it in the book. They had those like viral dancing sicknesses. They called it a mass mania in the Renaissance times and people were literally out in the streets. They said they couldn't help themselves. <laughs> Maybe that's what 2020 is on a media scale. Before Dr. Saxon putting this entire history of the disease together, Ellie Jaleffi had the most records of the time on Parkinson's, and his biggest thesis or assertion he made was saying that no two patients have the exact same symptoms. These are just fundamental aspects of one person's character, history, perception, their fantasies, goals for the future. And it's almost like, our first woo-woo from Mr. Ellie saying, it's almost like all the layers of repression and denial that you put over the true self throughout the life have to come out in some sort of way. And it shows because the your higher faculties are the last to go. Your intelligence, imagination, judgment, and humor even you're able to hold on to. Like I said before, we all know someone who has Parkinson's in our life. Joe Biden. Let's fucking be real, people. Senile bunker boy Joe Biden. Um, intelligence, imagination, judgment. He is holding on to his uh, humor. He laughs at his own jokes. I think we're going to know... When the dimension has a hold of him entirely and his judgment has gone askew. Because there's going to be a fucking ICBM going through the stratosphere towards North Korea. Might be a little too late at that point. <laughs> Start using a little bit more of a critical eye. You're going to notice these symptoms in the people around you. Which is not the way you should go about living life. But and maybe it is because the point of the show today is these are all individual symptoms that people feel. No two ailments are the same. Start looking at people as individuals, even Joe Biden, not as part of a party. Hard to do in our fucking civil war world. 1926 through 1967, final period of development for the disease, and Sachs sees it as a total period of loss. He said, we conflated sleeping sickness in this period and wrote it in the DSM. I think it was the 1950s was the first copy of the DSM, and that... <laughs> is the most detrimental thing to ever happen to medical science. Like, you and me might have the same energy level. That doesn't mean we both have ADHD. Your brain might be wired differently than I am, and mine and yours is a task-oriented energy, and where mine is, I gotta bang on the desk and fucking distract the teacher. We're just calling both of these things ADHD. And it gets even worse when you have these elderly patients who need the most acute care that you can give them. And we just put him in a asylum in a mental ward and say, you guys are all post-encephalitic. <laughs> Literally, all that means post-encephalitic, you're done moving on your own. <laughs> That's every old fucking person. And it wasn't until the late 60s, the period of free love, do whatever you want. You know, LSD was prescribable by medical professionals at that time. These dopamine antagonizers and L-DOPA were approved for use, and that's when... Dr. Sachs jumped on the asylum and was saying we're going to make it work. 
he was saying this period 1920s through 67 had a it was a it was like our current pharmaceutical model where you sell people patches rather than cures exactly like the fucking coronavirus man you tell people they have to stay in their homes rather than saying we need to be more healthy as a populace go out and get vitamin d it's not looking for cures it's looking for little ways that you could continuously make money off of your patients and so doc Sachs is going we need these asylums to more so model a rehabilitation campus rather than a fucking loony bin where you just toss all the people and give them the minimal amount of care there's our fifth patient today makes it home he's one of the only people ever that should really be the goal it's sad for Sachs to see but one in thousands of patients will actually be rehabilitated you'll see maybe his mood had something to do with it Sachs said it'll give you a tone for what he thinks the sense of what has been lost and what must be found is a metaphysical one. <laughs> it's a turnoff word for a lot of people. They're using it in 60s medicine. It's not going to be an equation at the end of the disease today of how we're going to balance out the cures and how much L-Dopa you should take. We're going to give and hear accounts that are going to have you look at these illnesses with a critical eye and come to your own perspective on these drugs and what would you do you have a one-third chance you're <laughs> you're more likely to get alzheimer's at the end than hit at a casino to take these ideas seriously today chapter two francis d is our first patient miss d was born in 1904 she was a little girl the youngest of four brightest of the bunch and when she was 15 she had a severe attack of encephalitis lethargica she had an early onset of parkinson's a high fever headache double vision delayed physical and mental response and lethargy everybody else on the playground probably thought that she was a drunk double vision headaches <laughs> she's coming in with a high fever yellow skin she's got fucking jaundice she's taking beer shits underneath the slide <laughs> miss d she's a lady these acute symptoms lasted for six months she had intense insomnia which lasted two or three hours she would sleep she was just labeled as neurotic by her uh doctor at the time a 1920 doctor it was probably saying to every girl that came into his office you're just being a neurotic you're menstruating get on the rag Think about that, though. She was getting two to three hours of sleep a night as a kid. That's who should really be taking these fucking uh, tranks, not the horses. We give people uh, ketamine nowadays, which I'm not saying is a bad thing because it has a 50% success rate at curing chronic depression. It just shows you that these things work. They should probably be reserved for the people that really need it who actually do have the sleeping sicknesses. Kind of like if you work a fucking Amazon warehouse job. Yeah, Jeff Bezos making $200 billion makes you pee in bottles, but it's not like you have to go home and pop a fucking morphine pill like you're on the beaches of Normandy, man. Like, you could put up with it. Let's save these things for the people that actually need them. Obviously, there's a surplus. I'm telling you to not get addicted to this bullshit. You're going to see towards the end how L-Dopa works best in moderation. By 1950... Miss D was past her prime. She's starting to freeze speech mid-sentence. She had some movements. But from her 20s to her, the 50s, she was uh, had these small breath attacks. And she described her essential symptoms as being unable to start or stop. Very Parkinson's-y of her. 
Either she feels like her feet are being held to the ground or she's being forced to accelerate. So what did you what would you choose? <laughs> Fucking chained to the table like an inmate or gun to the back of your head like a hostage. That's how these people describe being in the mind of a Parkinson's patient. Miss D was admitted to Mount Carmel in June of 1969. And as it happens, when people get taken out of their normal routines, she got worse. She wasn't being attentive. Her posture quickly became doubled over. She had a hard time peeing on her own. It seemed she had entered what medical professions will call behind their little shower curtain when you're in the ER. They call it the final decline. <laughs> pissed if my doctor said that to me. Before El Dopa, she was only able to lift her neck a few dozen seconds at a time. She rarely blinked, had an expressionless mask over her face constantly. Her voice was clear, just totally monotonous. Totally monotonous. The freezing happened more frequently and usually when she was switching activities. So June 25th, 1969, she's on her L-Dopa treatments, 0.5 grams a day, and was restless, fidgety at first. It increased her general activity, so she was knitting more than she had in years. On July 6th, they start giving her 2 grams a day, and there's varying effects. She has a stronger voice and less freezing more stable walking. However, she's chewing on her gums like a meth head. She became sore in the mouth. Her frigidity in her right hand got even worse, her dominant hand. So a week of improvement, and then she wasn't knitting as she really wished she could have. The most distressing side effect she reported was that the L-Dopa disabled her automatic function of breathing. This drug must be deep in your reptile brain, up in your medulla obligata. Your cerebellum is chilling with the L-Dopa because that's where your root functions are. Blink, breathe, shit. And she's having to do this on her own. Imagine that every six seconds telling yourself to breathe. I bet you're breathing on auto right now. Gotcha. Now think about blinking. Ha <laughs> Now you're blinking and fucking breathing like a Parkinson's patient. <laughs> July 16th, the respiratory attacks started happening at night with concerning power. So Sachs was saying, let's, um, let's taper down the old dopa a little bit. He waited till this point to mention that they were injecting her with 20 grams of Benadryl 4 every single day. <laughs> this is, um, if you know anything about ibuprofens, <laughs> the more science we get nowadays is showing that these things are fucking terrible for your immune system. And why are they so prevalent then? Maybe because Advil, Bayer, Monsanto, who we're learning about in War is a Racket, is paying for these things. To, how can you afford to have a fucking Advil commercial during the Super Bowl? Oh yeah, it's because everybody's hooked on your drug. You're the best drug dealer on earth. Sachs is putting 20 grams of Benadryl in this chick every goddamn day. I knew people that... We're lethargic. In college, they didn't have Parkinson's because they would drink themselves into legendary hangovers and then pop Advil like it's M&M's the next day. And these ibuprofens, again, linked to autoimmune disease. They probably had France's brain, Ms. D, eating itself. She became more easily triggered, heightened in emotional states, extremely excited or overly scared. These breath holding attacks were getting upwards of a minute so i don't think uh miss francis was a deep sea diver with trained lungs a minute of zero oxygen is going to start to kill your brain cells quicker than a 
20 years of Parkinson's will. By this point, Sachs was urging her to stop the medication, but she insisted on rolling with it. She liked the autonomy she had to get up and start her day again. So she's weighing the cost-benefit analysis herself. The two symptoms on July 23rd that weren't subsisting was that, again, she felt rooted to the floor. She's not a Reiki practitioner who's taken her feet off to root with Mother Earth. She's just trapped by the demons. And she, again, second symptom was gnashing away at her gums, bleeding from the mouth all day. On the 31st of July, almost two months into the treatment, she slipped into a deep comatosis-like sleep that lasted over 24 hours. Not good at a post-encephalitic ward. The nurses are poking her with a stick. Boop, boop, boop. Miss D, you there? She was deeply depressed for two years, excuse me, probably two years, two days after she woke up from that Sleeping Beauty level nap, and she said her opinion changed. She started calling the drug Hell Dopa. Doctors said before that little comatosis, she was like a blowtorch, and then after, she was like a candle fading out, and her biting went away. Her breathing became less labored. She felt like when she was totally cycled off the L-Dopa, Ms. D said, I felt like I kicked a demon. You're going to see how the later patients refer to the disease as well. She literally thought that she was possessed. She probably, without the help of L-Dopa, would have called a priest in to do a exorcism on her. <laughs> For three years, Dr. Sack had her on a cocktail of barbiturates, antihistamines, tranquilizers, and she said... She was doing her crossword puzzles quicker than she did before L-Dopa. It's really gray here. A lot of nuance. There's nothing totally good or totally bad. She liked seeing what the drug did for her. She said it unlocked a potential that she knew was within her all along but did not have access to without the drug. She just didn't want to be relying on it for the rest of her life. Sack says, I leave the final judgment to my readers. She's... It might be a, Parkinson's might be a lifelong character-altering disease. Misty had every intent of holding on to the character that she knew very well. That's going to bring us to Chapter 3. Magda B. is our next patient. Magda was born in Austria in 1900. She came to the U.S. as a child. From 1918 to 1919, she was working as a secretary and came down with encephalitis lethargica. By 1923, she had full-blown Parkinson's. Ms. B, Magda, was institutionalized for nearly 40 years. Most of these files were sealed to Dr. Shock, Dr. Sack. I like calling him Dr. Shock. Doc Shock, Doc Ock, Shock Top, Raindrop, Shock Top. <laughs> Her ability to talk Magda's was a completely rare found occurrence. She had no resting tremors, a little bit of a more dormant Parkinson's. She was uh, described as docile, bland, and incapable of emotional reaction. The three things that make you a human. 10 to 15 years pass by, she's mostly speechless and able to squeak out little, ah, little like uh, monosyllables to communicate. July, L-Dopa season, <laughs> get her on two grams a day to start. She's talking in two to three sentences at a low pitch. By July 8th, they raised her dose to three grams a day. And this is when the adverse side effects start. She had insomnia. She was constantly nauseated, massive pupil dilation. Magda was rolling balls. 
So it's a crazy part. A Viennese accent from Austria as a child came back as um, she started taking the drug more. Like you've heard of people that go into comas and wake up speaking different languages. This L-Dopa has the ability to access different parts of your brains you don't know are there. It revived this language that she didn't know she even knew. What the hell, man? She started vomiting in her sleep, though, so they got to taper her down back down to two grams a day. <coughs> Excuse me. By July 30th, she's up to three grams a day again, and Magda retaught herself how to walk. She was able to freestand for over 30 minutes. I don't even think I could do that. I would watch kids in a formation during a parade rest pass out if you stand for 30 minutes still it's easier to have a little bit momentum you keep going in one direction standing still you're like a twin tower getting ready for a controlled demolition <laughs> you're fucking if you lock your knees none of the blood gets to your brain and you will pass out magda knows <laughs> that saying el dopa needs to be given to every marine in the country she became very talkative overall she was laughing slinging jokes in her viennese dialects so shock kept her on around two grams a day from 1969 to 1971 and he said magda had the best response as a patient to l-dopa there was a small energy drop but she was still grateful for all the faculties that she had revived in her life all her friends and family said that she was a vacuum. Last chick was a demon. Her friends and family were calling Magda a vacuum from her 20s to her 60s. And she remembers this was like a delusional period where she couldn't feel happiness or sadness. She said the passing of her parents didn't even affect her. Like, it, she said it wasn't me. She straight up was saying I wasn't in control. Her eyesight started to deteriorate on the later half of those two years due to the L-Dopa. And she was just touching everything she saw. She was grateful to be alive. In 1971, her tone was completely sober and factual. From something you see of people who have a hard life, it kicked in her within the two years of working with Dr. Sack. Magda, one of the best endings we'll have. None of these endings are happy. It's making it hard on me. She died peacefully in the night. The nurses came and see her. She didn't void her bowels or anything. One of the most beautiful passings they had. It's up to you to decide. Did L-Dopa kill her? Did it accelerate her Parkinson's? Or did it... It did. Universally, as it does with all patients, give her the ability to revive some of the faculties she had that was debilitated by the disease. We will get Dr. Shock's final prognosis in the conclusion. I just said shock again. This is what we do on the show. We butcher names and we laugh at the medically handicapped. <laughs> Chapter 4. Lucky K was born in New York in 1924. Unfortunately, Miss K had some early onset illnesses. At two years old, she developed paralysis in the left eye called congenial strabismus. And was a, that sounds like a candy flavor, a ice cream flavor. Yes, you have the Haagen-Dazs here and the congenial strabismus to the right. <laughs> the strabismus is not a very moving flavor. Her walking, Lucky K's walking, became stiff and wooden. She became scared of stairs. She had that expressionless face from 6 to 16. She lost interest in making friends at school, became more disobedient. Insubordination! She started fighting with her mom, which was totally unheard of <laughs> you gotta love those 
healthy five son families where every week they take turns fighting their dad. I would go over to this house in my neighborhood. There was a it was a fucking animal house. Four sons. The mom would set up cafeteria style dinner. Come in when you're hungry. These kids would regularly, as a religious offering, it was their fucking ritual. They would ball tap their dad. I don't know why I remembered this recently, but it makes me laugh. Who the fuck has this as a normal interaction with their father? And <laughs> what happens after dinner? They get fucking the people's elbow off of the top stove burner. Batista bomb through the table. <laughs> Lucky K was not a WWE champion. By age 27, the palsy overtook. <laughs> and uh, she was bound to a wheelchair at a young age. 1964 comes around. And Lucky's mom brings her to Mount Caramel. She's always looking for the experimental cures for her daughter. Miss Lucky was only 38 at the time. And the male nurses immediately were very friendly to her. For two months, she was able to regain the ability to feed herself and to turn over in her bed. And then when her male nurses that she got so fond of left, she severely regressed. Goes to show you there might be a little bit more... Ooh, metaphysical manifestations to these diseases and the effort you're willing to put in to combat your degeneration. Or maybe, you know, I'm missing out on some deeper context to Grey's Anatomy, how hot doctors have medical healing powers. Dr. Oz, that's not that good look. Actually, yeah, he's a good looking one. Who's that other one I'm thinking of? The one who... <laughs> bones? We're getting a call about a bone. You need to come in and check out this bone. What's that one where the... Dr. House. That guy's a fucking train wreck. Doesn't support the medical healings of beauty. 1965 to 1968, her first years at Mount Carmel, she was in a routine of extreme monotony, except during periods of violent release when she was shouting. She was just mostly speechless. Dr. Sachs said during these three years in Mount Carmel, it was not necessarily good for her. Her and her mother were so close their pathology was inseparable he said you'll see with one of the later patients how the autonomy even with our last person the patient who was willing to fight the disease you are going to war with this ailment we're able to last a little bit longer and relying on another person was more of a crutch than anything like they say if you wear reading glasses from a younger age you're going to need glasses for a longer time because you're fatiguing your eyes you're not giving them the workout that they need obviously there's people with stigmas and shit but if i fucking start wearing a sling around my arm every day of the week my muscles are going to atrophy just like your fucking eyeballs will or your brain will at the end of your life if you give up and even worse, this is probably why Dr. Sha Dr. Sack Shock Shack had it. Dr. Shag, that's a good name, was telling Lucy that, you know, um, your mom's not good for you. She's getting in your head. She's telling you, no one here will ever love you like I do. Don't talk to these uh, people. They're uh, fake agents. They're trying to, she's getting the normal, like, schizophrenia of a person in a home. Degenerating quick, the final decline. They get her on three grams of L-Dopa a day, work her up really quick, and the Parkinson's and catatonia became worse. <laughs> she had what doctors were calling the blow-up, which later Dr. Sachs coined the name The Awakening, so she had the universal effect. One morning, Lucky woke up, and she was talking with her arms, very animated, a mile a minute, 
zero rigidity to be found. She said in a private meeting with Dr. Sachs the day after the awakening, take my hand in marriage, bring me away from here, we'll have a beautiful life. Dr. Sachs, he's like, you know, this is not going to happen, remember? You hit me in the balls because you thought I was an agent of the state. She called him a rat fink before telling him to fuck off for the last time. How good of a name is that? A rat fink? That's like a 90s insult. Sachs continued cycling her on and off as much as 5 grams a day of L-Dopa. She became aware of the cost-benefit of the drug, and he said that her final mentality was kind of like that she'd had it done with the world she was giving up on july of 1972 she passed away quietly and suddenly i don't know take it from dr sex he was at the final prognosis on this chick and how it seemed like her mind was before she was ready to pass on chapter five the last of the ladies we have ida t this is our big hoss she was born to a village in Poland with an uneventful childhood and what do you do when you're born in a town with nothing to do she got married at 16 and became a mom by 17 at 20 her younger husband younger than her died and this onset her impatience irritability increase in appetite like we saw on Magda before with the passed away father and then she fought with her dad got worse at school it's weird how these like we just talked about fucking brain entanglements it's almost like you put some of your vitality in this other person, and when they pass, a piece of you dies as well. And a large piece of the big Ida died as well when her young husband died. Her daughter was confiscated from her because she was overfeeding her kid and was abusing her kid, taking all that anger out on this little child. She became extremely immobile, blew up to 400 pounds, and developed the root symptoms of Parkinson's. 1966, she's admitted to Mount Caramel. Doctors referred to her as the seal-looking woman in the post-encephalitic ward. They called her Big Bertha. She was virtually without movement of any kind. The nurses couldn't tell if she was breathing on the operating tables because of all of the bulk. I mean, I guess big is beautiful until the doctor needs to hit you with a fucking shock paddle just to know that you're still breathing. <laughs> she got the first, um, the biggest dose of L-Dopa off the bat for the size of her mighty form, her good boy form, <laughs> and she was on four grams a day of L-Dopa. She became louder, and her speech patterns became more affluent, there was a dozen nurses there to witness her first awakening, and she was immediately spouting orders. A Jewish woman, I need a pint of ice cream every day with every single meal. I need more people who can speak Yiddish here. Can a girl even get an olive oil enema? Now knowing Dr. Sachs with a little bit of experience how much relationships affected Lucky and even Ida's decline, Sachs bought her a cactus and was going, hey, this is you. It's a little rough on the edges, but with a little bit of care, it can grow too. So she started uh, taking a liking to the thing. It, he thinks it slowed her mental decline even after L-Dopa. She would uh, watch it for hours on day. What are you doing, Ida? You're just watching my cactus grow. <laughs> Fun day, watching blades of grass glow. A uh, bigger sign, she started referring to the nurses as individuals. She learned their names. She wasn't just referring to them as her division of royal subjects. <laughs> they had a 
psychotherapist massaged her hands every day until she was able to hold things again. Why the fuck is a psychotherapist massaging people's hands? This guy is also a medium. He's doing palm readings on the side. That's basically what a fucking therapist is. <laughs> they convince you they know your future better than you and then charge you $100 an hour. In late of 1970, a nurse tracked down Ida T's long-lost daughter who came to Mount Carmel to visit her, and this brought Ida out of a further desolation and unreality that she was in. One of the better L-Dopa stories, she passed away of heart complications in 1971. Not bad, considering she'd been a walking zombie for 48 years. Chapter 6 is going to take us to our first male patient, Aaron E. He was born in 1907, the elder of two fraternal twins. His parents immigrated to Brooklyn right before his birth. He continued this pattern of hard work, laborious self-improvement that his parents started. He attended night classes and public lectures until the age of 23. He was up-and-coming accountant working to secure a mortgage. The American Dream. 30 years go by of Aaron in the workforce, and he never left a day of work or called out due to illness. 30 years, perfect attendance. What do you get? Do you get... A GI Bill, do you get a war bond from the state, anything to accommodate your service to the taxpayer base? No, Aaron got fucking Parkinson's and was shipped into a loony bin. <laughs> Is that a good trade, a good cost-benefit? The first signs of Parkinson's showed in the mountains when he was under a period of extra stress. That makes me feel great, broadcasting from a mile-high city. He um, would get restless and impatient, more fatigued than ever before. He felt like he was sinking into his chair, and he was in quicksand. He couldn't get out. It's not a bad idea, the quicksand chair. I feel like that could be pretty comfortable. This is an entrepreneurial think tank as much as a podcast. In 1965, the feelings had subsisted for over a year. He was... um getting worse basically he wasn't the breadwinner in the house over more which is completely out of character for Aaron his seamstress of a wife is making more money than him he's uh finally ready 1966 to say uh, I'm ready to try all your new fancy medicines three years at Mount Caramel he had full rigidity in his limbs and Dr. Sachs shows up like a Clark Kent in a cape March 69, they get him on four grams a day of L-Dopa. Three years he was chair-bound, and he is already up to sitting up again. Within a couple weeks, he was up and walking around. After three fucking years of wheelchair-hellbound prison, he cried to Dr. Shock. He was like, I got so used to this place. I got so used to my wife, everybody taking care of my needs. I could have done this all along. Dr. Sack had to reassure him, dude, <laughs> just like Robin Williams in that movie with uh, Matt Damon, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> That's what a psychotherapist needs to do, not massage your hands, tell you that you don't need to work 40 years for Parkinson's and nothing else. It's not your fault, man. You're, you shouldn't be up and about. You have this disease. The L-Dopa is what's giving you your vitality. Two weeks at five and a half grams a day. He achieved a virtual normalization, zero signs of Parkinson's. And by August, for the first time in Mount Caramel history of the thousands of patients who have been input and then died, he is the first patient to go live at home. 
Aaron and his self-sustaining mentality. He was able to live at home for 13 successful months. None of these have a happy ending, you know by now. 13 months, though, he was gardening, golfing, talking about the New York Stock Exchange with his broker. He was himself again after three years of watching how his life should have ended. His Parkinson's states obviously resurfaced with unreleasable lockups at first, and it was worse than the pre-L-Dopa stage, readmitted to Mount Carmel. Sachs took him off the L-Dopa. He went through a two-week remission. So they start with the cycles of moderation, one and a half grams on and off. And he, um, again, slipped into this passivity. Within six months, became apathetic to a level that just didn't match his character. He was just blankly staring at people's faces. Very few responses he was using. He... (laughs) This is like his go-to. He was Woody, a string on his back. There's a snake in my boot. He would say, Come see, come ca. That's the way it is, it means. Sack said that Aaron looked like he was the walking dead or that a ghost had taken over him. He thought the most telling thing about Aaron was that he felt burnt out. He said 50 hard years of labor. (laughs) Aaron was ready to check out completely and it manifested in the disease until he found out he had hope and that's what had him gave him a second wind in his fight another thing with a deep hole holy shit where's that el dopa deep hole not that close deep hole gives you a second wind i'm doing two a day workouts maybe aaron would have been able to garden or golf 36 holes a day had they given him deep hole and el dopa But this shows you our first dude and our first um, self-starter. A little different psychopathy than our previous ladies will change the effects of the drug. It's almost like it works like a psychedelic more than it does like some sort of stimulant to jerk your fucking system back in. It gives you the ability to reintegrate with the old sense of self. Which takes us to our last patient and the most famous one in the documentary. This guy has a complete transformation. His name is Leonard L. At the young age of 46, Leonard was admitted to Mount Carmel in 1966. He was down to minute hand movements. Written messages were his only form of communication for 15 years prior. He was an avid reader, became the hospital's librarian. Dr. Sachs described him as a cultivated and sophisticated man he had the face of a man of his 20s his vitality showed in uh what is he saying true detective you could tell the soul's intentions of a man from around the edges of his eyes he kept the youth the spirit in his face leonard l he would say i know my destiny may be grotesque here decaying at the end of my life but it does hold some sort of absurd beauty like a toad or a dwarf we still see the beauty in. In early of March 1969, he was taking 5 grams a day of L-Dopa. His rigidity was replaced with what he described as power. He was writing and typing again. He was only 46, but a Parkinson's patient who was cranking out masterpieces, he said it felt like he was let out of his own existential prison, even like a tomb he would describe it as. This is what I call my basement spider-ridden apartment here in Denver now the tomb the tomb of doom where I put it in her womb (laughs) he started to have some of those adverse effects he said certain objects would grab hold of his gaze and he wasn't able to avert his eyes 
He was looking at the Indiana Jones, the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. It's <laughs> the fucking symptom that Leonard had. Again, everybody's symptom is different. Universal effect was the same. During uh, Leonard's awakening, he typed out a 50,000-word autobiography that he said he was working on his whole life, and it helped him purge all of his demons. 50, that, that's fucking incredible, man. This El Dope, he wouldn't have been able to do that without this second shot at life. You know, that's what they called the shaman. He was like the gateway to rebirth around the guy who had the peyote and could give you a second uh, and a chance to get out of your addictions. It's exactly what is happening here. But then it got worse, as it always does with the El Dopa. They didn't moderate it as they should have in the 60s. He used to describe the asylum as all the patients were all the different animals of a zoo and all of them portrayed a slightly different mental disability and now that he has some of that paranoia kicking in from the drugs he is calling he's saying i am a messenger of god here to destroy satan's army <laughs> sax is like maybe we toned down the medication a little bit he went charles manson they fried him a little bit too hard in August, he barely was able to move. September, he opened up again, and then they said he hit a wall. He's like, there's no more you could do with me, Dr. Sachs. They did say also. He asked Dr. Sachs to hook him up with some of the nurses when he was in the throes of his El Dopa binge. <laughs> Dr. Sachs, this was one of his favorite patients. He was like Leonard L. He totally embraced the experience of the drug. And he was able to write his manuscript, his life story he was always working on. Leonard says he was able to break through some of the barriers that he put up around his own mentality throughout his life. And now he wants to say himself, you can keep your El Dopa. Chapter 8, we're in the endgame now. These are the perspectives. So a little bit more of a raw interpretation from Dr. Sachs. He starts out talking about the medical scene overall and think about it the terror of suffering at the end of the life it's the biggest goblin that you could put up to someone if the media could make money off of selling fear about parkinson's they would and that's the pharmaceutical industry but you see what i'm saying here there needs to be for most people to fight a disease a unifying name or a f like leukemia you are going into your battle against leukemia we look at it as a war when you're going to war, you better unite the fronts. You need to have every fucking armory, every victory garden, every single front needs to be activated in order. What does Sun Tzu say? The battle is won before the fight. You need to unite the medical practices, every fucking ounce of your will to defeat this disease. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And that's why we give this end-of-the-life degeneration the name of Parkinson's. Dr. Parkinson's, his family must fucking hate him. You meet a girl on a dating app, hey, what's your name, baby? You might want to go out sometime. What's your last name so I could Facebook stalk you? Um, Jenny Parkinson's. She never gets a call back. Every guy thinks that she's going to pass out at face down in her soup during dinner. <laughs> He could have been just called it end-of-the-life degeneration, and then they could have had a normal dating life. <laughs> Dr. Sachs. He says those who are attuned to their power of health can find cures from within. He's getting reeky on us again. This is why, think about it, your doctor will always ask you, how do you feel? This is a better indicator than any of the fancy instruments he has. What do you think that fucking ear stethoscope is? He peeks in your ear and turns on a little miner's hat? That's not going to tell you if I have a cold. 
He's, he's checking if I clean my ears out. Like, what the fuck is the point? The really what a doctor is there to do is attune you to your power of health. That's so fucking holistic and hippy-dippy. But seriously, this is why doctors ask you how you feel. This is We're going to get into the placebo a little bit next chapter. Dr. Sachs knows the placebo was stronger than any drug he was able to give these people. He said... In one of his final assertions, he used the word folly to start it out. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. Folly occurs when we try to reduce metaphysical terms to matters of mechanical ones. Healthcare. <laughs> How you're trying to... This is yourself, your own individual health, and why would... Here's a better quote. There is nothing alive which is not individual. Our health is ours. That's what Dr. Sachs said. So tell me how socialized healthcare fits into where nothing alive is not individual. It doesn't make sense. Why should I, this kid who's tried to take steroids to make himself the fucking optimized form of his body, pay for some McDonald's junkies double and then triple bypass surgery? Especially... I'm about to fucking testosterone rage out when last year I was told by the fucking U.S. Department of Unemployment that I was ineligible for benefits when my fucking dominant arm is falling off of my body because some other driver hit and ran me. Everybody and their goddamn mother is furloughed and getting free money from the fucking state right now. For what? How is that? It's not healthy when you socialize things. Your health especially is individualized. If we want to find an end-all cure, we're going to have to give more to this medical effort than just some doctors with a falling-apart asylum. Just like the battle with leukemia, if the medical community wants to take on the fight of Parkinson's, you need to fund it. You need to get everything we know of. <laughs> Maybe like Dr. Sachs assemble a history of the disease first like imagine how many other diseases are out there that you just trust your doctor on you know most medical science is mostly guessing which you're not going to want to hear that you see a guy in the white lab coat whether he is a scientist or a doctor or a fucking ben and jerry's flavor maker you trust him because he has a lab coat on and it's all a guessing game they know that plays into their mystique and they're making 300 grand a year because of it can't blame them. Do the research into your drugs before you want. Like these people who came from Europe for the L-Dopa. Never, ever trust a doctor. I've been to fucking allergists before. These people... This guy was a fucking demon, man. He stuck me with 30 needles and then was giving me these little free drugs to get me hooked on. He's like, when you go to the pharmacy to buy these, make sure you give them my card so they know I sent you. You're not a fucking influencer, bro. You're a doctor. You don't need to be making comp points when I use your promo code. This is the fucking state of medical practice in the United States of America. I'm happy I'm being enlightened to this reading these books, awakened to it now, and last year having to fucking go under the knife myself. It's important shit right here. Starting to get preachy towards the end. <laughs> he talked about... In his time, Dr. Sachs, the Leibniz Optimum Health Standard was the goal for mental health and physical stature for the day. And he said, compared to even the 1970s, the Leibniz Health Optimum was critically unhealthy. Okay, so like I'm saying, everything is individualized with your health. 
Compare yourself to yourself yesterday, not anybody else. Because in America, one-third of people are obese. One-third of people die of heart complications. If you take the average weight of the American, we are severely overweight. So you cannot be comparing your mental health even to a society that is extremely unhealthy. Oh, man, it's getting scary out there. We're going to be here every Tuesday to try to talk each other down. Look no further than food science. I mean, the fucking food pyramid was telling you to eat cake at the top of the pyramid every day, and the foundation of your diet is supposed to be carbs. Use that critical eye. Health and disease are alive and dynamic with powers and propensities and wills of their own. That's a quote from Dr. Sachs, not me, who you know as the fucking Terrence McKenna reading hippie. This is a real-ass doctor. He said, one of his final perspectives, awakenings always happen within two weeks. The patients always chose what the outside observer invoked. Some people were able to hold on to this awakening for a longer time, like Aaron, for 13 months he held on to that power, or Leonard, who wrote a 50,000-word essay with all that power. It's how the user decides to use the drug. It's just like fucking ADHD we talked about before we got a better definition coming up he was talking about a pretty cool piece of medical machinery it's a holist cat scan which measures the total energy in the brain that sounds way yogi you need more positive vibes in your brain man with the same dose of the point of this with the same dose of l-dopa over time in the holistic cat scan you can see that you can maintain the same level of brain activity without upping the dose of L-DOPA. So this is not one of these addictive stimulants like cocaine or methamphetamines where you need another hit to get to the same level of brain activity. You take L-DOPA once and you can maintain that level of enlightenment for a long time. Are, are we putting the pieces together out there? Am I talking to myself, Tory Lanez? Do you understand? What the fuck that I'm saying? El Dopa's a psychedelic. <laughs> like how they tell you, only take MDMA three times a year. It can activate your serotonin receptors. Whereas if you take it too many times, you're going to fry your fucking brain like they did with the El Dopa. And if you do it with MDMA, hey, me and my friend got separated at the rave. Do you know where serotonin is? Serotonin. You need those serotonin receptors just like the El Dopa. There is a certain amount of dopamine residing in your brain, and it's a different amount than mine. We're all different. I look at my left and my right arm, and there's veins in different places. Why would we have the same brain? The L-Dopa gives you the ability to unlock this dopamine, have it free in your brain. It literally just has you access parts of your brains that were already there and you didn't have access to. That is the definition of a psychedelic mind manifesting. Doc said, symptoms of a disease can be replaced with poise, resilience, and ease. It's seen most in the handicapped people and amputee patients. So, you know, you amputee patients, they have this poise. Like they said, Ida at the end of her life, like, was stern, stoic, and she got the secrets to life almost. Sax is going, I've talked to a lot of handicapped people and amputees. When you don't give them false hope, they are the closest to reality that anybody he knows has. That's Doc's perspectives with a little bit of mind thrown in. That brings us to chapter 9, second to last, tribulations, trials and tribulations. You're going to learn a little bit about 
buying off if you could buy off a politician why would you not be able to buy off a scientist every patient in this l-dopa study experienced the unclouded return to health on their first use of l-dopa so in medical science this is what's called the universal effect what every single person concurrently had happened to them a side effect is determined by three grounds the practical effect the physiological effect and the philosophical effect but you're thinking i'm trying to make aristotle a fucking medical practitioner right now the philosophical effect is more important than any of them that is the placebo effect which look at all the sugar pill studies i could lower your heart rate by giving you a sugar pill as long as you believe me and i'm wearing the fucking medical doctor coat <laughs> let's play dress up i need to give you a proctologist exam <laughs> trust me it's for your own good <laughs> i'm gonna wear a fucking white lab coat out to the bar from now on it's in your best medical interest to come home with me tonight babe <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of an example about the universal effect versus side effects. In my SAT class in high school, I was about 16 years old. I had a bunch of friends in the class, so obviously we had no intention to learn. Well, what is this test that decides your future going to do for my future? <laughs> we took Gas-X before the class. Are we familiar with this? It's kind of like Tums. It's supposed to x your gas and my buddy who took a couple of the pills said that it destroyed all the gas bubbles in his stomach and he said he felt better after the class meanwhile i took a couple and i was laying down some all-time hall of fame rippers i was sending mustard gas up to the front of the class disturbing it with my ass you know me and my friend, we both got the gas out of our system. That was the universal effect. But my side effect was farting. His side effect was an upset stomach. You see how maybe the placebo was effect there? I mean, I really did want to cause a upheaval of everybody's nostrils in class. And maybe my friend just wanted to <laughs> put to rest the undercooked sausage he had for dinner. I don't fucking know. You know how the placebo effect is so powerful in these things. I don't really think Mount Carmel was a fart asylum. <laughs> the Aldopa did act harder on people who believed that it was going to work like Aaron and Leonard. Everybody has a different side effect to even gas sex, so why would you think um, <laughs> a real disease like Parkinson's is going to be any different? It's just more exacerbated. The actual interrelation of a side effect and the entirety of a patient's lifestyle can't be told. That's why there's this really trippy assertion up here. Dr. Sachs was saying that the best future indicator of medical health is current attitude not lifestyle choices how fucking wild is that that is a tough one to say i'm not sure if i believe in it entirely he is saying how you feel right now if you are going like i to t i'm done with life all these guys rejected me throughout life and then in the fucking nursing home i'm done here your current attitude is going to portray how you feel in the upcoming weeks and months more than uh, what kind of fucking greasy meat you had for dinner. These people who live till 90 years old and smoke a pack a day, their mentality is, I'm not done until I'm done. And then you got these vegans who might also be token on their neck beard 
tobacco pipes, except their nihilist mentality towards life, their current mood, winds up manifesting in an autoimmune disease by the age of 50. <laughs> They're done, man. They don't even want to be here, so get out of here. In life, Sachs says, we are addicted to this awakening cycle, the process of having the realizations, which you know, if you're one for diets, like I've been talking, I've been good on this one, I've given up sugar, that in combination with a little extra testy, baby, you're going to get shredded. I have a six pack again. I'm Last time I had it was high school. Hashtag bring the pack back, baby. I got to fucking start milking that. I'm going to start selling fit tea for you guys <laughs> every Tuesday. We are addicted to these cycles of trying the diet again, of having that realization that you think is there for the first time. And the key is to hold on to that awakening for as long as possible. And it's just more obvious when you're doing it in a study like this at the end of the life. People are perfect test subjects. If you were ever allowed to do human trials, an asylum is the place to do it. So we're learning more about Parkinson's. We're learning more about the human brain from things like this. Sachs said the great implosion or awakening can't happen in a frictionless space. It's like you don't grow if you're not testing yourself. These people would never had the awakenings had they never tried the new drug. Sachs thinks, as we were just talking about the three classifications of side effects, he says diseases themselves are like constellations joining with one another and shine bright on their own even. So we think about Ida T, the lady who was 400 pounds, had heart disease, and that is what she died of. And she was also having, in Constellation, these pint of chocolate ice cream at every meal mood swings. And that's not good for a person who's catatonic and can only exist in complete stillness or complete <laughs> maniacal outbursts. <laughs> You're not going to want this person on an all-sugar diet. We're back to the universal healthcare. It's an individual pursuit, and everybody, everybody's a shining star out there. For real, you have your own thing to contribute to the world, and <laughs> it's probably going to manifest in your own fucked-up type of mental illness at the end of the life. So, hey, donate your body to science. Be an organ donor. What, are you going to use them after you're dead? Here's a quick conspiracy. Always got to have one in the show. I've heard that organ doning is actually so that the hospital can have the highest bid on your body. Because after you die, the hospitals, this is a fucking morbid thought, it's a morbid show, they take bids on, what are those called, morgue rooms to get the best organs. This is why that Yu-Gi-Oh genocide is going on in China. They have the most people and the most transplanted organs. Hey, China, where the fuck are you getting all those organs? It's because they have a million people in concentration camps. And they also ship human hair here. So if you have organ donor on your driver's license, it's just saying, like, free body. Hey, this guy didn't actually want to be bid on. You're a cheap whore. Life is a tribulation. Chapter 10, the epilogue. This was written 10 years after in 1982, and the most question that Dr. Sachs was receiving was, are any of these patients still alive? And he basically this was all the end of the documentary, this is where they are now type of vibe. In the meantime, 1970 to 82, there weren't any breakthroughs because there wasn't a concerted effort. It's like um, the uniting the forces. We need to make a constellation of all of our best practices in order to make a breakthrough. 
with Parkinson's and it's fucking 2020 and we still haven't bat an eye at this disease. It's the number one non-selling fiction book of all time and people still haven't read it or reading more Cam Jansen and Hunger Games than we are uh, Awakenings. I read the Hunger Games too. There's room for both. Do it while your brain still works. One of the patterns across the patients is how Sachs was saying it distorts the sense of the eye and it refines your sense of self. It's like how some people choose to define themselves with a disease. I'm OCD. <laughs> I'm Parkinson's. Like, why would you say it like that? That's not a thing. You shouldn't fucking want to make this your entire existence. L-Dopa shows you the potentiality you have that you forgot about. So Leonard was saying, yeah, I have Parkinson's. I'm doomed to be a toad or a dwarf. And then he took L-Dopa and was like, well, I'm a writer. What the fuck am I doing here? I'm the I should be running the library and working on this manuscript and he held on to that until he finished his predetermined goal, which was to write his little manuscript. And so well, he he gave up too early. This guy lived with 20 years with Parkinson's. He won his battle in my point of view, but it goes to show his Dr. Sachs point that the disease is whatever you give to it. It's like fucking <laughs> If we didn't have germ theory, we'd still be doing these exorcisms and be like, the more you pay attention to this demon inside of you, the bigger it grows. And I even noticed that with my goddamn arm. I'm not trying to define myself with this, but I was I had a near-death experience at 23. I could talk about it on a radio show. The more you pay attention to these things, the more they manifest and the worse they get. And so this problem with the drug refining the sense of I... And Magda, the lady who was like, I, I didn't like what it did to me. It showed me a part of myself that I didn't know that I had the potentiality to be. And I don't need that. I know who I am. Or she knows who she has settled to be. You can't fucking blame her, man. These people live for years in an entrapped self. And <laughs> deeper point to end it. But at a certain age, all you have, you're not even able to get up on your own. All you have is familiarity your sense of wonder for some reason for people who watch too much news who are controlled by fear your sense of wonder is hijacked by anxiety and all you have is this familiarity the sense of i and you want to mess with that as little as possible if you're not trying to continue to grow and the ultimate challenge of life maybe i'm not here to tell you what your life is is to re-examine your sense of self and grow. If this really is some fucking samsara wheel in the sky and you are here to learn, the highest sin would be compromising and fucking throwing in the towel, not trying everything new, even if that means something to fix your current ailments. Just like those cycles we're addicted to of awakening, of awakening Sachs was going, there's probably these underlying cycles we don't even know about that we're going through. And we're getting better as well. It's just so much more obvious when we're doing these clinical trials. Let's look at people like Aaron, who had the best case, died in 1977 and was able to keep cycling with the L-Dopa. It really is like that MD amazing, man. You have one big awakening and then you do it once in a while just to remember. And then you see the people that are abusing it, like the Ida T who went too hard and had her fucking outbursts. 
I don't know, man. Just like uh, Dr. Sack said, I'm not going to be able to draw the entire picture for yourself. You're going to have to make some of the conclusions on your own. So I'll leave you with a T.S. Eliot quote to end us and thanking Dr. Sachs for all this fucking research that is absolutely critical to all of our brains, a third of people at the end of our life. T.S. Eliot said, At the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Thank you guys for tuning in to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction and kicking off our brand new schedule every Tuesday. You're getting a brand new show. Next week is going to be a mystery episode. Two weeks from now, we teased it a little bit. That's going to be War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. That was an absolute gem of a recording. It's a fucking funny show, if I do say so myself. I was on a roll. Those are my wheelhouse that rise of serfdom fucking totalitarian state prison that we are all within relevant now more than ever can't wait for that show can't wait to be back in seven quick days love you guys i will see you all soon smash that motherfucking subscription button peace